Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear from Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers with some advice for making fitness part of everyday life. I, I really believe that if you can find a way to work out five out of seven days, that you're going to be healthy. And when you say, what's a workout? Workouts depend are different based off of who people are. It's also different on based off of what your calorie intake is and what type of body you have and what kind of workouts mm -hmm. you do. Then we'll learn about a program that helps children with a variety of different feeding disorders. So every time the child is presented with a bite or drink of food, someone's collecting data on what's happening. Is the child crying? Does the child push the cup away or the food away? If you think about it, eating actually involves a very complex series of behaviors. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about a program for children with several types of feeding disorders. But first, we'll talk fitness with an expert from our Syracuse University neighbor, head football coach, Dino Babers. With me in the studio today is a special guest from our Syracuse University neighbor, head football coach Dino Babers. He has some advice for making fitness part of everyday life and for motivating young people today. Thanks for being here. Thank Appreciate you, it. Amber. Thank you. <laughs> Let's start with, uh, is it true that you've wanted to be a football coach since you were six years old? You know, it is. I, uh, I was always uh, asking people what I should be when I grow up. And and uh, during a quiet moment, the word coach came to me. And uh, I've been striving to try to be a coach ever since. At the time, I was a short, fat mama's boy that never left the house and really didn't play a sport. You didn't play football? I really, well, at the time, I did not. I had an older brother, a younger brother, three other sisters in my family. And my dad and my brother played football at the time, but I did not. I was just, stay, I would stay in the house and just watch TV. So uh, when I, decided that I wanted to be a coach. I really didn't know what sport I was supposed to be a coach in. I just knew that I was supposed to be a coach. And then uh, when my older brother found out that that's what I wanted to be, he started beating me up and forcing me to go outside and, and play football with him. Because he said, if you're going to be a coach, you got to learn a sport. I said, but I don't know if that's the sport I'm supposed to learn. But he just wanted me to get me out of the house because I was a mama's boy and I was gaining weight. So he would get me out there and get me playing with the other guys, and eventually uh, football won me over, over compared to basketball and track and all those other sports. Did you try those other sports? I sure did. did? I, I was a basketball player, ran track, played football. I tried to do a lot of everything so I could just get, to, uh, get around other coaches to learn their styles, to learn their techniques, to see uh, the good and the bad, see what I could take with me and what I wanted to leave behind. That's interesting that you had a focus from a young age on what you ultimately wanted to do and you did things to get you to that place. Um, what did you like about football? I thought it was fair. You know, I, I grew up in the 60s and uh, grew up on military bases all around the country. I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. I started uh, 
kindergarten first grade in Norfolk, Virginia, graduated high school from San Diego, California, and I lived everywhere in between. And the one thing when you're moving from north to south, east to west during those times is that you realize everything wasn't always fair. And so what? What are you going to do about it now? And I thought that uh, not only football, but I thought that uh, competitions and sports was at least fair. You at least had a chance. Even if the officials were a little biased, at least you had a chance to overcome it. So I thought it was the, the most fairest thing that you could do, and that's what drew me to it, drew me towards it. Neat. Well, what do you think um, the players that you have on the SU football team, what would they say about you? How would they describe you as a coach, do you think? You know, I, that's a question that I, I, I'll, I'm going to backpedal away from. I think you need to ask them, and obviously they're not here. I don't know how people perceive me, and I'm not sure it matters that much to me. I have, there's certain things that I want to get done. There's certain things I think that young people need to do. Uh, my dad was military. I was raised in a military fashion, and I think that all young people in their quiet way, in their hipster way, the millennial way, I think they all want discipline. But you just can't put it on on their, on their plate and say, this is discipline, eat it. It's like peas. You know, it's like spinach. You know, if you tell them it's good for you, they don't want to eat it. And what you got to do is you got to find a way to put some sugar in it, mix it up in some potatoes, some kind of way for that broccoli to go down. And I think if you can find a way to let them swallow it, taste it, savor it, I think they'd all walk away with it and they'd all say that they'd want some of that discipline. And that's what I try to do with young people on my football team and young people that I meet in my life. So discipline is, is part of it. But let's also talk about, um, do, do you have sort of a secret or a formula for instilling you know, heart and determination and focus and in athletes and um you know, I think everybody's hot button is different, you know, like it's like marriage. Everybody every partner knows who the other partner's hot button, even though they we both push it too much. You know, I think when it comes to young people, um my biggest thing is I just don't want to settle. And uh I don't want to be average. And if you're around me you, you need to honor that code that you're not going to be average and you're not going to settle. That means you're not going to settle spiritually, you're not going to settle physically, you're not going to settle mentally, and you're always striving to be a better you. And as long as you wake up every morning with those goals, I think that we can hang out with each other. If you're not like that, you're going to find me very difficult to deal with. Well, that also, as you were saying that, it, it sounds like that would work on the football field, but it would work I don't know, in a classroom or, or on a job site as well, right? Absolutely. I, I, think, I think that coaches are teachers, except for one. I'm a teacher by trade, so if I wasn't a coach, I'd be a teacher. My degrees are in teaching, so the teachers may get mad at what I'm about to say here. But I think that the only difference between coaches and teachers is that coaches aren't allowed to fail anybody. Hmm. A teacher, you can fail someone. There's a bell curve. Somebody's going to get an A and somebody's going to get an F. Somebody's going to get a B and somebody's going to get a D. In coaching, you everybody has to get an A or everybody has to get a B. Because if there's somebody's going to get an F or a D, that probably means if you keep that up that you're going to get fired and you're going to lose your job. 
teachers have tenure. Coaches have contracts where they can get bought out and sent down the road. So your uh, your enthusiasm or the way you go into something is you can't fail. Everyone has to pass. And uh, there's just a more sense of urgency of making sure that everyone gets the knowledge that they need to have an opportunity to be successful. So you can't give up on anyone? No, not at all. Right. So do you have some athletes where you've got to um, work a little harder to, to build them up, to give them confidence? Do you, have, do you see confidence as being an issue with some? I, I think that uh, sometimes you've got you to give them a confidence pill. There's no doubt about it. And then sometimes, you know, their egos are such that you have to take away their capital E and make it a small E because everyone's allowed to have an ego, but you can't have a billboard type ego in the room when you're doing something that's done in a selfless manner with a, in a team concept. So I think there's times where you need to give some athletes more confidence and there's some times when you need them to tone it down a little bit so the team aspect can come into play. When you're um, recruiting athletes, I imagine you look at talent and physical skill and what else do you look for in, in the person, sort of? How do you pick someone Who's going to be successful? I think it, what we're doing right now, you need to get into conversations with them about uh, athletics. You need to get into conversations with them about academics. Kind of how everybody wasn't privy to how we started our conversation this morning. But I think you need to learn something about them. You need to learn something about their past, uh, whether they have came from a single parent home or two parent home or no parent home. And then find out what, how much drive they have in them and how much do they want to be successful, how important it is to them. Because I found out if you give somebody something that they really, really want, they'll normally do anything and everything in their off time to achieve it. And what you want is you want a team full of achievers. And then you want a team full of people who when people tell them no, they don't even hear that. That that no is for somebody else. That's not for me. You just told me, you didn't say no, you just said go. Because that's what that word means to me. Neat. Well, as you mentioned, your undergrad, your master's degrees, your background is in education. Did um, part of your training, did you take courses in, and did you study how to motivate athletes, or is this something that sort of comes natural for you? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I took every psychology class I could take. Uh, I wanted to be with as many coaches. I said before, I played a lot of sports. I wanted to be with a lot of coaches. Uh, when I played collegiately uh, at the University of Hawaii, I had four. I played four different positions, uh, and because I wanted to be coached by as many coaches as possible, and coach and being coached by those coaches, some coaches were better than others. And uh, it's one of the things that I tell my players all the time. I said, all you treat all your players the same, but all your players aren't the same. Some are better than others. Doesn't mean you. They're, you treat them the same, but there's no doubt that some are better than others. Some coaches are better than others, you know. And I'll take it to another step. You know, even though everybody passed pass the, uh, the, uh, the test to become a doctor, all doctors aren't the same. All teachers aren't the same. All coaches aren't the same. All financial advisors aren't the same. They're all qualified, but they're not the same. Some are better than others. And if you do your homework and you do your research, you'll really find out who's really at the top and who's just surviving. 
Oh, interesting. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dino Babers, the head football coach for Syracuse University, about making fitness part of everyday life and how to motivate young people today. Um, At your introductory press conference when you came to SU in 2015, you asked everyone to close their eyes and envision a team that could win and bring a den to the Carrier Dome. Do you believe in sports psychology and the idea of visualization um, being a helpful tool? I do. I think if you can see it, you can achieve it. And uh, I remember being in that room and asking everybody to close, close their eyes. And I remember how long it took for everyone to close their eyes. And it brings me back to sometimes you, you're speaking and people hear you. And, but what I need to do is I need to be speaking and people listening to me. Because just because they hear you doesn't mean they're listening to you. And, uh, and asking those reporters and those media people to, to envision what I wanted and to ask them to close their eyes. Or I'm like, I asked you guys to close your eyes, and I'm not going to go further until all of you close your eyes. And all the ones out there listening, they know, listening, they know who I'm referring to. And when they did that, then I could start the vision. I really believe if you can visualize it, you can achieve it. And you have to see it done if you really want to have all your energy, all your focus all your faith heading in the right direction. And I think there's nothing bigger than sports visualization and visualization in all aspects of your life. I've seen and read about um, Olympic athletes using visualization. It seems to be a little more common than people might realize with athletes. I think it's almost a lost art. I really do. And, And it shouldn't be exclusive to just athletics. I mean, if you're visualizing Mr. Right and you visualize visualize him enough, you'll know what he, what he looks like when he steps into your life, <laughs> him or her. Good point. Well, I've got to ask you about the uh, football game that everyone remembers from this season, the upset of Clemson. Um, and I watched an ESPN interview that you gave where they asked um, you know, why you won that game. And you talked about that your team had some close losses in the two previous games and that you felt there was sort of a loss of faith. So what, what did you do to help the team – get back from that and I'm, believe. I'm not quite sure that's that's exactly how I said it. What I what what I what I believe I said was I thought there was a lack of faith from outside the team. Outside and, the and team. And it's and it's so important that the team is linked with the community, that the team is linked with the administration, that the team is linked with the university. And I never felt that there was a lack of faith within the team, but all those other uh, things that I mentioned are all part of our family, the university, the administration, the community. So I felt like there was a, there was a, there was troubling, there was bubbling waters, that there was a lack of faith outside of us. And uh, I was excited that we had an opportunity to re-energize the administration, the university, and the community to keep the faith, belief without evidence that this thing is going to get done, that we are going to be winners. It's going to happen. It's going to happen soon, and all you're going to be around to see it. Neat. Well, it was very memorable for everyone. right back with SU head football coach Dino Babers. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. 
We're back with head football coach Dino Babers from Syracuse University. Let me shift the discussion a little bit. Um, anxiety has overtaken depression as the number one reason college students seek counseling services over the last decade. Um, record numbers of students are feeling overwhelmed, and hospitalizations for teen suicide attempts has doubled in the last 10 years. What advice do you have for America's youth to get through what some would describe as tough times? You know, when you talk about tough times, when you talk about anxiety, uh, depression, you know, I, I, it makes me think about the things that we're afraid of, okay? And the way to become unafraid of a topic or an object is to become familiar with it. And what I mean by that is if you have test anxieties, well, you need to prepare more. And some people I've studied, study, and all I do is get it just, you know, I get more depressed, more anxiety. I, I, I don't buy that. I think practice does not make perfect. That, that is not true. You can practice and you cannot, and not come to perfection. But perfect practice makes perfect. And I think when you're preparing in the right way and you're coming to the conclusion of the correct answer all the time. I'm talking about academics right now. I'm not talking about sports. That you gain so much confidence that when you go into a test situation that there really is no anxiety. You know, I, uh, I was an education major. I got education degrees and I really didn't like school. Hmm. Graduated high school on the honor roll and I really didn't like school. Graduated college with honors, and I really didn't like school. Went and got a master's degree, and I really didn't like school. Got two degrees to teach, become an educator. And technically, I really don't like school. Never missed a day. Those little presidential patches you used to get for going to school all the time and being physical and doing the push-ups and the chin-ups, always got a patch. And what I'm referring to is, even though it wasn't my favorite thing to do, if I was going to go, I was going to do my best. If I was going to go, I was going to sit in the front of the room. If I was going to go and you're going to give me a grade, then I'm going to try my best to get an A. And for me to get an A, I had to be prepared. Um... I just think it carries over in everything. People, I, I know people who have test anxieties. They can, they get straight A's and they come to the exam and they bomb. And they go to the professor, I have stress anxieties, da 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 da. Look at my homework, look at this, but I just, I sit down with other people in a testing room and I have anxiety about it. It's a real thing, I get it, sure. I'm not making fun of it. But I just feel that if, you, if you're prepared and you know all that information, there shouldn't be any anxiety. If someone can ask you a question and you know the answer and you know it so well, there shouldn't be any anxiety in spitting that answer out, whether it's verbally or, so on, or whether it's on a piece of paper. So the will to prepare doesn't matter. Okay? It's, it's the will to prepare correctly that matters in all aspects. Neat. Well, I'd like to talk a little about the importance of maintaining good physical health. 
So can you tell us what um, football players fitness routine is like <laughs> during season? Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's unbelievable. They get up early in the morning. Uh, right now, our young men are getting up. We have a seven o'clock weightlifting schedule and an eight o'clock weightlifting schedule. So they lift weights for an hour, hour and a half with running. And then they go on a Monday, then they go to school all day. And then they come home and they go to study hall all night. And then they do get some free time. This is where they can get some free time, but it's cutting into their sleep time because Tuesday morning they're going to do the same thing again at 7, 8 in the morning. And you talk about the amount of calories these guys bring in. Every health person head would spin if I told you the amount of calories <laughs> these guys can eat and not gain weight because they're putting on muscle. And it's really amazing. So they lift weights and run Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. They take Wednesdays off, Saturdays and Sundays basically off. On Saturdays, they will come in on their own and what we call break a sweat. And that's basically their routine, okay, through the off season, not counting football practice that comes up for 14, 15 days. Now I want to switch this to uh, a, normal, a normal person. I, I really believe that if you can find a way to work out five out of seven days, that you're going to be healthy. And when you say, what's a workout? Workouts depend are different based off of who people are. It's also different on based off of what your calorie intake is and what type of body you have and what kind of workouts right. you do. So you won't be doing what the SU football team is doing. No, you won't be doing what the <laughs> SU football team is doing. But I think if you can find a way, okay, to do something five out of seven days, you're going to have a chance. Now, for me, I, you know, I used to run. I used to play basketball. I used to do those things. I'm not of the age to do those things anymore. So I like to walk. Now, when you're walking, you're not burning off the same amount of calories as running. So if I'm going to walk, I like to, I like to really go walk. So my walks are anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. Okay? Or I really don't feel like walking. Okay? I really want to go out there. And I'm going to try to break a little bit of a sweat. I like to lift weights because I'm around so many guys that lift weights that if you don't, you really kind of stand out as a sickly looking guy. So I'll spend some time lifting weights. And that's where the 6 a.m. thing was because I'll normally come in and lift an hour before the football team lifts. So I normally lift from 6 to 7. Football team lifts from 7 to 8 and 8 to 9. And then on your weekdays, your two off days, what I would say when I say do something to break a sweat, go walk around the lake. Um, bike ride. Go a bike ride. Go play with your kids. Go play with your grandkids. Shoot basketball with somebody, one of the little kids down the street. Do something on one of your off days. That's just fun. That you just happen to get a little bit of a sweat going, and then that's it. And if, and if you do it and you're kind of spiritual about it, it normally seems to work out. Now, there's some people that just say they don't like exercise, sort of like you were saying you didn't like school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what advice do you have for them? Does it have to be enjoyable to do it? Well, I think you need to trick yourself. That's what I think you need to do. Whether it's, hey, if you have a favorite, oh, I'll tell you this. I used to do this in college. This, this worked for an ESPN guy that used to be an ESPN anchor. He Now he, he does the sports in San Francisco, a good friend of mine. I'm not going to say his name. But... If you watch a lot of TV, okay, this is in the old days. This is how old I am. It, and we used to, used to have commercials, <laughs> this thing called commercials. But if you're watching your favorite TV show, your sitcom, 
that, okay, you're watching your sitcom. As soon as the commercial come on, don't watch the commercial. Drop down and start doing sit-ups. And as soon as the commercial's over, get back up in your sofa and finish watching your show. So no matter how much TV you watched, whenever the commercial came on, you had to do something. So if you watched 30 minutes, you did 30. You did an hour, you did an hour. You did two hours, you did two hours. But that was the payoff. And all you did, all you had to give up was not watching the commercial. And that makes it a little, seem a little more doable. You'd be surprised what you can get done in little bits in between those commercials. Well, you're surrounded by um, young athletes who train every day and stay in top physical shape um, while they're your athletes. But do you do anything to make sure that fitness is going to stay important to them, you know, late into their life? Fantastic question. We've got, we have a, uh, something that I'm really big. We talk about elephants and hippos. This is, I'm going to give you a sidebar, you know, a court of law sidebar. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take you somewhere and I'm going to bring you back. Okay. On an, on our football team, we have elephants and hippos. Okay. Elephants are our offensive linemen. They're normally 300 something pounds, somewhere from six, two to six, seven. And these are big men between the ages of young men, between the ages of 18 and 22. Then we have what we call hippos. Our hippos are our defensive linemen. Okay, they're normally not as tall. They're normally somewhere from six feet to six foot five. And they are also usually well over or really close to 300 pounds. Well, normal health tells you you're not supposed to weigh that much. That can be a lot of heavy duty work for a heart beating to somebody that big. While they're playing the game of football, they need to be that big. Now, here's the sidebar. Now, I'm bringing you back to it. When these young men graduate as seniors, one of the things that we're really big on, myself along with our strength coach, is that you're going to have an opportunity to play for the NFL. That's great. Here's your opportunity. These are the things you need to do. If you're not going to have an opportunity to play in the NFL, the first thing I do is I bring those guys in for one-on-one health meetings to sit down in my office to start charting with the strength coach. How are you going to lose this weight? How are you going to cut these calories down? Because now, without the physical activity that we do, if these guys continue to eat this, the calories that I was talking about earlier, you know, they could end up in a piano case. It could be terrible. And our, we're really, really big on making sure that these guys cut their calories, cut their weight, and we want it done immediately. You know, it's kind of like when young ladies have a baby, like, lose the weight later, uh, no, lose the weight now. And we want it done immediately. And we're, I really pride myself on how much weight those young men are able to cut within a year to get them get their bodies back to normal and get their calorie takes back to normal so they can live a long and healthy life. So that process still involves um, exercise, right? Absolutely. But it really, what it, the mental part of cutting down the calories that they the things they used to do, they can't do anymore. You can't order that pizza. You can't, before you, you were burning those calories off at football practice, lifting at 7 and 8 in the morning. You're not doing those things anymore because there's nothing for you to do those things for, and it's not fun. So it's really big on the mental part of it that your intake, okay, is going to be really important for you to lose this weight. So diet is part of all of this, healthy living, exercise, and diet. Um, are there... Is there any strategy using like the visualization when it comes to, 
getting people to eat healthy or your athletes to eat healthy? I think the big thing with the, visual, the visualization part of it is me sitting down and telling them the truth and telling them stories of other young men sitting right across from you where the story ended good and where the story ended bad. And in the old days, they had to take your word for it. Millennials, don't, they don't believe anything that you say most for the most part. They only believe Siri. So I give them the names and I tell them to Google it. And then they Google the articles and they read everything. They know that it's gospel what I'm telling them and that they really need to do this right away if they really want to have a healthy life. Now, when they're um, playing, uh, they're, what they eat is sort of given to them, right? They don't have to decide? Or do they do they have a cafeteria where the athletes eat? Or Yeah, we have a cafeteria where the athletes eat. And we have a, we have a line where, hey, you're not allowed to gain weight. You eat in this line. And we have a line where, hey, you have to gain weight. You eat in this line. And then we have a line where, hey, you get to maintain weight, and this is the stuff that you eat. And, you know, they're, they're, they're held to that. I mean, there's certain weight gains that they have to hit in order to be able to do the things that we want them to do on the football field. So they do a fantastic job of that, too. And it's all monitored with uh, professionals with degrees that know what they're doing. So it's a pretty careful diet. Yes, ma'am. Um, but then when they're out on their own, they have to learn how to eat healthily, just like the rest of us, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, but they do a good job. They know the one thing about athletes, you can – Tell them what to eat, but they want to know what's going into their body. Their body is their castles. So they really do a fantastic job of educating themselves. We don't have to do that much education. So that food is, they, they see the food as fuel and it's got to be, have this much protein or this much what? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, celebrating victories has got to be sort of one of the high points of college football. Um, do you suggest that the weekend warrior needs to celebrate in some way as well? You know, I think I think celebrations are good for you. You know, weddings, anniversaries, you know, birthdays, uh, special events. I I think when you've worked really hard, you you owe yourself a treat, and uh, it's to me it's okay to break the diet for that two scoops of vanilla ice cream. Now you don't have to put the fudge and everything on there, but uh, you know I think it's okay to do that or to have that that glass of wine that's really nice that you want to have. So I think if you work hard and you play hard and you're successful and you're a win, you're allowed to treat yourself. Now just understand that you need to do something extra for those calories you just put in there, but uh, I think it's warranted. Celebrate. Well, I heard that you're a fan of movies, so I've I got to ask you what your favorite sports movies are. <sighs> wow. I mean, there's a lot to choose from, there's a lot. There's a lot to choose from. I love The Natural. I absolutely love the natural, the old guy getting a shot, nobody knowing what happened to him, and then fantastic story of him making a bad choice at a very young age and how long it affected him. And, uh, you know, I just love the natural. Field of Dreams, obviously, fantastic movie. Um, I probably should say a, cow I mean, a football movie in here. Remember the Titans? You know, that was... a. Uh, in Virginia, and I spent some time in that state. So, and then Denzel Washington, I like him anyway. <laughs> but uh, then to hear the the uh, how they at the end where they rolled the credits and they're talking about where where those sunshine the quarterback that went to South Carolina and where all these guys went to school, it was awesome. You know, so uh, I'm in I'm into movies, but sports movies always have a special place. 
Imagine. Well, thank you so much. This has been nice talking to you. My guest has been Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, solutions for pediatric feeding disorders on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some children during infancy or early childhood refuse to eat certain types of foods, and if this goes on long enough to affect their weight gain or impact their growth and development, it might be time to see someone who specializes in feeding therapy. Heather Cady is a behavior analyst who directs the feeding program in Upstate's Department of Pediatrics, and she's here to talk about this service. Thank you for being here, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of services that are offered through the feeding program? Yes, absolutely. We provide an intensive feeding service, um, so as you said, for children who are not eating either enough variety of foods or enough quantities of food to maintain nutritional status and growth. Um, Our program provides a fairly intensive level of service, so kids attend appointments Monday through Friday for about one hour. We have seen kids for up to five or six hours a day, um, dependent on severity of the feeding problem. Generally, those kids have... Um, a feeding tube such that they're eating very little by mouth or not at all. And each child that comes to the clinic is staffed two to one. So there's two therapists assigned to each child. And one therapist is presenting food or drinks or whatever we're working on in therapy. And the second person sits in the room to collect data on the child's responding. Now, what age um, kids are we talking about? What age You know, I have seen children from newborns all the way up to 14 years old, Um, you know, and kind of on either end of the spectrum is somewhat uncommon, but generally most kids who come into the clinic are probably ages four to eight. Okay. And what, what's sort of the underlying disorder or the underlying cause of the feeding, like what types of um, underlying causes are there? Sure. So I, I would put them into two general categories. Um, Many of the children we see have had um, complicated medical histories where they have experienced something many times at birth that have restricted them from eating. Um, Many of them have experienced something where they have um, experienced pain associated with eating. So something as simple as reflux as a baby causing the child to have discomfort related to eating. I've seen children who have had severe allergic reactions to certain foods. I've seen children who have had a choking episode. So again, something that happened when the child was young for them to associate discomfort with eating. Um, And then the other category I would say, um, we see a number of children with autism. And um, as most people know, Children with autism demonstrate a very strong preference for routine. 
and are very resistant to change. And this often may carry over to eating. So we see a number of kids where they only eat maybe one or two foods throughout the day, or they may eat very specific things for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In addition to that, these children often also um, have very rigid um, eating routines such that foods have to be presented in a certain way. Just to give you an example, I have a little girl, and when she first started with us, she only ate one kind of baby food. She was four years old, so it was not an age-appropriate texture, limited variety, and um, she would only eat when she was sitting at her counter at her island on a stool, and the baby food container had to be tipped upside down just so that the food would fall down onto the plate in a certain way. If it wasn't, she would simply refuse to eat. Um, Those parents also reported that if they went on vacation or to a friend's house, that she would simply refuse to eat. They would refer to them as hunger strikes, and they'd often have to come home from vacation because she wouldn't be eating. Um, That's obviously fairly severe. Um, We see a number of older children, four or five years old, still drinking out of a bottle. Again, this is how I eat, this is my routine, and I'm not changing it. Well, how how do parents know whether they have like a picky eater or, or like it's a phase and it's or a picky eater um, or a child that's got a feeding disorder that you could help with? How do you tell the difference? That's a really, really good question because I think that's one thing that parents really struggle with because, you know, everybody has an opinion about eating and everybody has an opinion about how children should be fed. And people are often very quick to say, well, that's just a picky eater. You need to do this or you just need to make them sit there till they eat their dinner. And, um, Generally, these children are suffering from nutritional deficits or not getting enough calories. Um, These families can't travel to places because of their child's restrictive um, feeding problems. They don't participate in um, holiday meals. I had another little boy, a little boy with autism, and, you know, it's, Halloween was very difficult for him for multiple reasons. One, because he's having to walk up to strangers' houses and speak to them. Mm -hmm. And secondly, he had a feeding problem. And so his mother told me the first time she took him trick-or-treating, you know, he went to a neighbor's house, a familiar person, and he got up to the door, he said trick-or-treat, and the man placed a piece of candy in his bag, and he took the candy out of the bag, and he threw it at the man and ran away. And so... Again, these kids aren't eating candy. They aren't eating cake on their birthday. They aren't eating ice cream. They aren't eating cotton candy. And normally for a child who's just a picky eater, they eat kind of what they want, but they also eat these other things versus children who are really suffering from this feeding disorder. Um, They are very, very selective, and it's affecting them nutritionally and, and calorically as well. So really, if I hear you correctly, if it's impacting your life, I mean, those are huge, huge um, impacts. If you're not able to travel, you can't eat it out at a restaurant, you can't go to a neighbor's house for dinner, Um, then maybe it is time to ask, I, I guess, are people referred in through a pediatrician usually? Um, so how we get our referrals, um, all of our referrals actually go through, um, Peds GI. Pediatric so pe- gastrointestinal? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. Okay. Um, so we do get some referrals from local pediatricians, um, and then we always send them to um, get a medical clearance um, for feeding from Peds GI. And so they will see the children and then make a referral to us. Because um, obviously for some kids, 
the eating issues may be related to a medical issue. And so that needs to be resolved before any child would come to see us. Because sure. obviously if a, a child is experiencing pain associated with eating, we certainly don't want to work intensively to get them to eat foods if there's still something ongoing. So any child that comes to see us um, is medically cleared, they're able to eat, and they don't have ongoing medical issues. Okay. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Director of the Feeding Program in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate, Heather Cady. Um, tell us what is ARFID, or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder? Yeah, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? No, it does doesn't. It? <laughs> ARFID? Right. So this is the current... Um, diagnostic category in the DSM-5. So it's actually um, revised. Um, it used to be um, feeding disorders of early childhood and infancy. Um, and they have revised it to include a wider range of ages. So previously, a child would have been categorized as this if they were experiencing these issues at six or younger. But um, often you may see older kids with this issue as well. Just to give you an example, um, I saw a boy who was older, 14 years old, diagnosis of autism, and he had a, he was a typical eater throughout his life. He had a choking episode at the age of 14 on some fast food and completely stopped eating and um, ended up in the hospital because um, he wasn't eating. And so although he was older, it didn't fit into the category of something like anorexia or bulimia. It wasn't related to something like self-image um, a distorted self-image as it is with those other diagnoses. Um, so that would be an example. And so they wanted to be able to encompass this kind of wider range of problems that, you know, may have even occurred at a younger age, but just has persisted because the child hadn't received appropriate treatment. Interesting. So I, I also want to talk about the types of therapy that's offered and how feeding therapy I, is there crossover with speech language pathology and occupational therapy, or, or do you work together? Or um, Generally, the role that speech OT, OT would play for us is ensuring that the child is a safe oral feeder. So they would ensure that the child demonstrates the oromotor skills to be able to effectively consume food chew and swallow, that the child um, isn't experiencing, isn't at risk for aspiration. Um, but, and I do know that sometimes occupational and speech therapy do provide some types of feeding service, but it is somewhat different than what we do. I would say the primary difference would be the level of data analysis um, data collection analysis that we provide for each child. So as I mentioned earlier, there's a therapist presenting food or drink to the child. There's also a second person in the room collecting data on the child's responding. So every time the child is presented with a bite or drink of food, someone's collecting data on what's happening. Is the child crying? Does the child push the cup away or the food away? Does the child touch, put the food in their mouth? If they do put the food in their mouth, do they expel it? Do they hold it in their mouth? Do they chew it? What do they do with the food? If you think about it, eating actually involves a very complex series of behaviors in a chain, and those all have to occur for accept effective consumption of the food. And so there's a number of places at which things can fall apart. 
you know, as early on as a child may not be sitting in a chair at the table, they may be running around the room, or they may be crying, or even if the child, like I said, is accepting the food, they may spit the food out. And so the data collection allows us to very carefully pinpoint each one of those problematic behaviors for each individual child. And generally, you have to treat the first chain and the behavior before you can treat the next one. So sometimes what we have to do in the beginning to get a child sitting quietly in the chair is different from what we need to do to get them to chew and swallow a bite of food. And so the data collection and analysis allows us for each child to very carefully track those behaviors and the child's progress. So what we're doing involves learning and that takes time. And we're also able to track the child's progress over the course of a day, over the course of multiple days and weeks. Then just to give you an example, if we're working with a child, we're presenting bites of food to the child, and we're collecting data on crying. And you may come by and you see, you know, come by for three or four days in a row, and you come by and you peek in on the child and you see them crying, and you think, wow, that just isn't working. Every time I go in there, that child is just crying and they seem upset. But then if I showed you a graph where on the first day you came, the child was crying for 80% of the session, the second day it was 50%, the third day it was 30%, and then the last day it was 10%, that tells a completely different story. And so it, again, allows us to very carefully track those um, behaviors and be able to tell whether or not what we're doing is working. Is it getting better? Is it staying the same? Is it getting worse? And the data really hold us accountable to whether or not we're being effective in what we're doing. How long do some of the um, therapies last? I mean, I know that the kids are there maybe for an hour at a time, but for how many weeks? And that's a difficult question to answer because it really depends on, on where the child is when they come in. So I gave you the example of the child who was eating one type of baby food at four years old. In that case, you need to work on texture variety. Um, and initially, for a child who's eating baby food, you can't go right to table texture food. So initially, the increase is pureed foods. And then from there, you need to go to table texture food. But then from table texture food, you need to work on volume of those foods. And so for a child like that, it's going to take much longer, maybe a year's time to get them close to age typical eating. For a child who comes in and is eating table texture food but isn't eating enough quantities of those food and just needs some restructuring of the meal, you know, maybe that takes, you know, three to six months to get them where they need to be. So it all depends on, on where they are when they Very come in. Very individualized. Exactly. Mm. You know, and then again, you have some children who have feeding tubes and that may be a much longer, more intensive process as well. Sure. Well, before I let you go, we're about to run out of time, but any advice for how parents can get their kids to eat their vegetables? <laughs> you know, it's, it's again, because it's so individualized, um, giving advice is a really hard thing to do. But I, what I would like to speak very briefly about is I always feel compelled to speak on behalf of parents. And, you know, parents often come to me very defeated. Um, you know, as a parent, one of your first tasks when your child is born is to feed them, right? You need to keep them alive and you need to keep them healthy. And so for a parent not to be able to do that is um, is extremely difficult and frustrating for them. And then that in combination with all of the advice giving from people, um, parents really come in feeling like it's their fault. They've done something wrong. They're a bad parent. And these issues are not 
the result of bad parenting. These are very real, very severe feeding issues that often require intensive therapy. And so I think my recommendation would be if you are a parent or you know a parent, um, that you recommend that they maybe seek out some information about this and get an assessment to see if their child does require um, some intervention for the feeding issues. Well, well, very good to know. Thank you so much. My guest has been Heather Cady. She's the director of the feeding program in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Jane Craven is a poet from Raleigh, North Carolina. Her poem, Mission Peak, demonstrates how we can soften absence, at least for a little while, by allowing the images in a day to bring us back to life. Here is Mission Peak. I recall that day as the day I photographed the angels under the boardwalk in Asbury Park. They were tall, as a man could reach with a spray can, flowing robes and spiky halos all in red, the only color he had, I guess. The concrete pilings absorbed the paint, which made the angels rusty in spots. It was obvious he meant it, the artist, that he was bent on these angels having a presence so he must have pressed down on his index finger until it hurt in some kind of punk Sistine Chapel moment. I could have been murdered under there, but there was nothing more than tangled bedding pushed under the farthest wedge of the pier where someone woke and left that morning or last year. It was fall, bare shore, a few boys casting nets, some tumult in the waves. They began to yell in disbelief at the luck of it their nets full of thrashing mullet the size of a forearm, stripers ripping through mesh as the boys dug their heels in the sand, trying to haul them in, falling backward, collapsing in laughter. Your husband wrote that you hiked up Mission Peak just before you died. For some reason, I have twinned these recollections of the Jersey Shore with those of you. Brown curls, legs tanned, you making your way up the rocky trail, San Jose radiates in the distance. Here, clouds thin. Pale foam blows down the shoreline. There was an old ballroom on the boardwalk at the foot of the pier. Chandeliers hung with sheets, specks of dust drifted in the sun. The angels held up the floorboards. They could have been ghosts, if not for the wings, ruddy, still of this world. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about advanced directives and vaginal rejuvenation. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.